0: As I've gotten older, I've gotten better at abandoning books that just aren't working for me. Once upon a time, I thought that once you started a book, you had to follow it to the bitter end. But at this point, I'm too impatient. The to-read list is too long to wait for me to slog through reads that are all duty and no pleasure. But occasionally, I've been grateful for that youthful perseverance. There are a handful of books that I wanted to abandon that, having found a way in, having stuck with them through early doubts, are now favourites and pretty high on that list for me, is Shirley Hazard. I love her now, but for many years, I couldn't get into any of her books. And for the longest time, I kept my Hazard scepticism secret, out of this sense of embarrassment. Honestly, I feel pretty exposed right now. But, as is so often the case, I've since found out that even amongst Shirley Hazard's most notable fans are readers who found her hard to first get into. So this week... We're offering an entry point to the work of an Australian literary legend, and I've enlisted some help. One writer whose work I love and I've never struggled with is two-time Miles Franklin Award winner Michelle de Kretzer, and her enthusiasm for Shirley Hazard is emphatic and long-standing.
1: When I look back on half a lifetime of reading Shirley Hazard, here's what I remember. The room in which I first read her. A cold Melbourne room, high above a courtyard, in which a green curtain had been drawn back from the window to admit afternoon light. And a different room, dimmer, filled with books, also in Melbourne in which I began to read The Transit of Venus for the second time. The scene of a tremendous revelation.
0: Just in time to inform your summer reading, we're making the case for why Shirley Hazard is worth your time. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams with Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. Shirley Hazard's most notable books were her masterpiece, The Transit of Venus, but also 1970's The Bay of Noon and 2003's National Book Award and Miles Franklin Award winner The Great Fire. But she was also celebrated for short stories and for works of non-fiction. And it has to be said she's remained woefully under-read in Australia. But her fans out here, and I count myself as one of them now, are vocal advocates for her novels. Michelle de Kretzer isn't just a fan of Shirley Hazard's. Back in 2019, she wrote an essay about her as part of the Writers on Writers series. It's a beautiful essay. It offers not only insights into Hazard's life, but also a kind of masterclass on how to engage with her writing, illuminating the precision of her prose and the fierce humanity of her fiction. But we'll come to Michelle in just a bit. When we approached her to see if she would talk Hazard for Read This, she was characteristically self-effacing. She said something like, I've just written a pamphlet. You need to get Brigitte. She's written the big book. Brigitte is Brigitte Olibus, whose biography Shirley Hazard, A Writing Life, has been critically acclaimed and award-winning since its publication late last year. She is, by any measure, the world's expert on Shirley Hazard and why you should read her.
2: I first read The Transit of Venus a little after when it came out, so I read it in 1981. It's a story I've told quite often. My younger sister had left Tasmania. We'd grown up reading together. We were studying English and and French at university. She'd gone to The Big Smoke, moved to Sydney. The Transit of Venus had been released in 1980. It was a big splash internationally and in Australia. And she sent me a copy of the paperback and wrote inside, I think this was written for you. So I I first read her then. I then came to Sydney and wrote my first graduate thesis on her work and then forgot about her like everyone else did for 20 years. And then The Great Fire came out in 2003 and she was blasted onto the, the literary pages again. And I read it and loved it. So I started writing scholarly work on her and then researching her archive and realised I was the only person kind of doing that.
0: I'm fascinated by your sister correctly identifying that this was a book for you before you'd come to the mainland, before you'd begun a career as an academic. And it not only connected with you, but so well that it prompted you to want to write about it, write about her. Mm. What were the elements in it that spoke to you on that first reading?
2: Certainly there was the sense that Australia was something worth writing about and and an Australia that was somehow tangible and and familiar. Um, I'd not had that sense reading Patrick White. I mean, I I loved reading Patrick White's novels as a young woman, but there was something that was not kind of accessible about present-day Australia. Uh, So I love that. And I love the prose above all. I think for anyone to love or or to even enjoy reading Shirley Hazard, you need to be there for the sentences. You need to spend the time that they take to read, to reread, to slow down and rejoice in the poetry of them. I don't know of another stylist who gives as much at the level of a sentence as she does. And I've read them all many times now. And you'd think it would become familiar, and it never does. I'm I'm delighted. I gasp, you know, at, at the sound of a sentence all over again. So walk
0: me through those biographical beats. You know, tell me about her upbringing in Sydney and her parents. I mean, you write so beautifully in the biography about how deeply unhappy her parents' marriage yeah. was.
2: Yeah. There is a version she told of her childhood and upbringing which um, is almost true and that is, you know, I grew up, we had a nice house, I went to a good school, Um, all of that's true and my father was, you know, well, it became a diplomat, he was never a diplomat, he was a trade commissioner, he came out of industry, he was very opportunistic and smart and made new opportunities for himself. Her mother was, uh, I think, diagnosed later in life as bipolar and was very unwell, mentally unwell, for all of Shirley's life. So those two loathed each other. Her father was having affairs. As they moved around the world, his mistress was travelling with them and then he finally ran off with her in, in the early 50s and Shirley was left with her mother. But even before that, she recalled, she used to tell a story that when she was six or seven, her mother said, ''We're going to kill ourselves together. ''Come with me and we'll put our heads in the oven together.'' You know, so she's telling that story and then she's telling... Well, I read in one of her mother's letters, oh, I remember you used to come and sit on the on the steps when I was doing my work in the kitchen and read poems to me when you were, you know, three or four and say, don't you think that's beautiful? And, you know, so and her mother adored her, but her mother had this terrible kind of spiralling um, craziness uh, that was never managed or was not managed until much later and even then not well. And uh, so, after the father ran off, uh, Shirley was left in a tiny flat in Manhattan with a, a you know stenographer's job, uh, with her mother who was you know screaming and crying and you know day after day. And then she sent her back to Australia, and cu- then kind of her life began.
0: She went back to Australia. She did a study in Hong Kong, then New Zealand, then back to New York, just in time for her parents to finally separate. Was she a lonely person with that kind of moving or did she, uh, notwithstanding the unhappy love affairs or ultimately unhappy love affairs?
2: She was very lonely. Loneliness, isolation, being uh, misunderstood are constants in all her diary writing, all her notebooks. Even, you know, 20 years into 30 year happy marriage, it's still this sense of isolation and then after her husband dies, she's back in the, you know, so... Yes, she felt very alone.
0: So let's jump, if we can, to Shirley the Writer. That career really started with a piece that she got published in The New Yorker, yes?
2: Yes. So this is another one of um, the stories that Shirley has had liked to tell. She said, the first story I ever wrote, I only made one copy and I sent it off to The New Yorker and Mr William Maxwell pulled it out of the slush pile and uh, said, we want to publish it and please write me some more. And I was in, you know, a house of my friends in, in Italy and I opened the letter and read, you know, yes, we're very happy, so on. And I walked across to the hills to Siena and bought a notebook and opened it at the back and started writing at the back because I didn't think my thoughts were important enough to write from the front. I found that notebook and she did indeed start from the back. But in fact, what happened was while she'd been staying at that house of friends outside Siena, the son of the owners of the house, Arturo Vivante, wanted to become a writer himself. And the house took paying guests who were mainly literary and artistic people from the US and the the UK. And another one of the New Yorker kind of figures, Dwight MacDonald, had been staying in the house. And he'd taken some of Arturo Vivante's stories to the editors at the New Yorker and Arturo was published. So the next year, when Shirley came back in the summer to stay, Arturo said send one to Dwight MacDonald, he might take it to the editors. And that's exactly what happened. So she wasn't pulled out of the slush pile. She had a direct line to the most important editor at The New Yorker. And William Maxwell said, we'd never seen anything like this, like it's this perfectly formed writer. Where did she do her apprenticeship? No one knows, obviously just under her own eyes. And I mean, she never kept drafts. There, amongst her papers, there's a lot of stuff there, but there's the final typescript of, of some of her books and some stories and there's no draft. So she liked that idea that she kind of was perfectly formed and, and didn't need to practise. I have to say there's something
0: very endearing about her gilding the lily on the story, it, being enamoured with the romance of yes. it as well, which I think very relatable. So in 1963 she met the man who would be her husband. Tell yes. us about that.
2: So she became very good friends with Muriel Spark and Muriel said to Shirley 1 January, January 1963 you need to come to the party at my place this evening the man you're going to marry is going to be there. And Shirley said well, Muriel always had this thing that she had second sight and you know. Could... Anyway she needed to go it was cold she had a cold blah. blah, blah. And she was talking to people, and the man came in. He was very tall. He was wearing an excellent uh, overcoat. So, she, and she always had an eye for the for the classy outfit. And they sat on her chair together and talked. And she, then she said, and when we left, you might as well say we went off and got married. The relationship with Francis Eggleston was complex. I mean, he's a very complex figure. But what is important about it is the. Um, the devotion of the two of them to each other. And there is safety and security and also she's found someone for whom the life of the mind, the words on the page, are hugely important. And they spent, you know, famously, this was a story she told, starting in about the early 1980s, so for the last decade of his life, they read together Shakespeare, uh, Herodotus, Thucydides, you know, they, they read... The, the classics of Western literature. And I think the reading aloud was a way to reconnect with him, to keep him in in the zone with her.
0: It must have been... I mean, he died in 94 at the age of 88 and she lived well beyond to, yes,
2: that. Yes, and heartbroken. Um, a, a very successful and happy life in one sense. She had, you know two really successful books out, the Green on Capri and the uh, the Great Fire, won the National Book Award, won the Miles Franklin, um, bestseller, Good Friends, A A Wonderful Life, Plenty of Money, well, until, until she didn't have plenty of money. And every day in the diaries, she cannot bear it, she misses him, she is alone. You know, here I am doing the things that we did together, but I'm doing them alone. And I decided with the biography to... To not hurry that last chapter, to give the weight of attention to not just her grief, um, which was very real, but also to that loneliness, to the end of a life, to a woman alone. You know, the kind of story that we might hurry over because it's no longer glittering and full of promise and so on.
0: Is she sufficiently recognised and valued (laughs) in our culture?
2: There has been a... A revival of interest certainly since her death. There were several other revivals of interest. The Great Fire brought her back in. It was ten years between Bay of Noon and um, the Great Fire. So we're used to kind of losing her and and having her come back. But I think there's this a lovely sense over the last few years of also of young writers discovering her for the first time and being. Just galvanized by the quality of the writing no you know no I've never read anything like this before. Um, so the idea for going out of you know shot and then coming back in again, blasting back in again with these these big successful um, novels or reissues there, there's a kind of lovely logic to that too because it, it does charge the writing with a sense of novelty all over again
0: When we return, it's Michelle de Kretz's turn to make the case for Shirley Hazard. And she explains why, no matter how long a writer lives in Australia, whether they love it or hate it, they will be marked by it. We'll be right back.
2: With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper, no hot takes. As a 7 a.m. listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter, bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters.
0: Michelle de Kretzer began reading Shirley Hazard well before she herself would become a writer, but she felt this early kinship that continued to blossom and two decades later exploded into full obsession one that has had rippling effects throughout Michelle's own writing career. Michelle de Kretzer, tell me about that first time you read Shirley Hazard's work.
1: So the first book of hers that I read was The Bay of Noon, and I must have been about 23 at the time. I suppose it was the first Australian novel that I read that was looking outwards, away from Australia. The books I had read by Australian writers were largely with rural settings. And I had no ambition whatsoever of being a writer at this point, but I had been a lifelong reader. And I felt that reading Australian literature offered me very little Um, I felt my foreignness very much reading those kinds of Australian books. And I suppose as a reader, I was looking for toeholds, a way to understand the country and the society around me. And these books didn't offer it to me. And I thought, oh, you can be in Australia reading a book by an Australian writer and seeing yourself mirrored in it. Mm. And that was a big thing for me.
0: I don't remember Bay of Noon well. What stays with you about that book and the descriptions of Naples?
1: You think it's a novel about a love story. In fact, it's a novel about a friendship. Mm. It's a friendship between two women. So there is Jenny, who's the English mm, protagonist, and there is Giaconda, um, who's the um Italian woman it's somewhat older, but they become friends and the friendship is described in some some detail and wonderfully evoked again. And then then they betray each other. After they have they have not seen each other for many years, many, many years, and Jenny older now is on her way to see. Jaconda for the first time and that's where it ends
0: Yeah, I love that idea of putting that friendship at the centre of the story and also betrayal is a great engine for fiction
1: Betrayal is a great engine for fiction
0: Possibly one of the best Just disappointed, resentful, all of that stuff
1: Yeah, yeah um, but they do it not even really acknowledging to themselves that they're doing it, which is, of course, fascinating. I mean, she's a, she's a great writer of character. After I'd read The Bay of Noon, I read her first novel, which is The Evening of the Holiday, which is very um, beautiful, also set in Italy. But that is really a love story. It doesn't have that extra force
0: is that the kind of reader you've always been? If you discover an author and you love their stuff, you then yeah, an, go back. Yeah, I'm, I'm a
1: yeah completist totally. So you totally. had to go,
0: had to be in the hazard game at that point.
1: Yeah, I had to. Although then the terrible thing was, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I then read um, the Transit of Venus, which had recently been published and had won, you know, large prizes overseas, not in Australia, of course. And I was terribly disappointed.
0: I'm so thrilled that you're confessing this because I'm—I tried Transit of Venus three times and couldn't get into it. And it was only after reading The Great Fire. Oh, you went back. Okay. I went back, and then it unlocked something about Transit of Venus for me, and I had a wonderful time with it. But I I, really—I'm pretty sure it was three times that I, because people I trusted said, "Read this book. She's a really important writer. You need to read it." And I just—I couldn't get it.
1: No, me neither. Um, you know, Francis Stigmler uh, Hazard's husband said no one should have to read the Transit of Venus for the first time. <laughs> and you know, I I really I mean I I persisted. I went to the end. Um, anyway, I then just sort of put it on my shelves and forgot about it really for I would say twenty years, and then I read Green on Capri, which was her her memoir about Graham Greene, and. Uh, really enjoyed it. And putting it back on my shelves, I just j- drew out the transit of Venus and stood there, started to read it. And it was really, you know, the lightning bolt. The, it's the road to Damascus moment as utterly
0: converted. That's I, so good when that happens. Tell me about coming to it and... Reading it for the first time all over again.
1: (laughs) Reading it for the first time, I suppose. I mean, well, you know, the beauty of the prose, but that's always there in Hazard. The intelligence of the design and and the audacity of it. So, you know, I think on page three or five or something, the main male protagonist's um, death is announced, that he will die in a hotel. And you have to get to the end of the novel to find out why and in fact his death happens off the page but you know that it's going to happen because you remember what happened what you read on page three so it's, it's it's really one of the most um brilliant and audacious foreshadowings I know of it is like a piece of clockwork that book and every time you read it you notice another bit that slots into place and that you know um refers back to something or refers forward to something
0: Throughout her life, Shirley Hazard was an outspoken critic of Australia, and many of her books explore the fraught relationship she had with this country. In a 2005 interview with the Paris Review, she said the following, The Australia of my childhood was a place that one might want to escape from. The narrowness of just about every outlook, the overt rawness, and the hypocritical puritanism weighed heavily, even on one's uncomprehending spirit. I realised early that nothing would come of nothing, and I wanted to be away. I was not alone in this. Thousands of Australians felt it. It's maybe not surprising that her success in Australia was limited, and her fame reached its highest peaks during the time she lived in America. Do you think, I mean, Transit of Venus is the most reckoning with Australia and Australian identity she does on the page, arguably?
1: Yeah, I guess so. There is stuff in The Great Fire too, Mm. though. Um, You know, one of the things that gets overlooked is that um, Hazard, I mean, she wrote very openly about the white Australia policy in that book because the Australian man in that book, Peter Exley, falls in love um, with a woman of of mixed race and he's, well, he may be reluctant to get married because he's the kind of man who is reluctant to commit himself, but he also is really aware that to bring a woman who's not white into the Australia of the time will mean difficulties for her. Mm. So, you know, I think that that was quite something really and I know that that novel was often disparaged, this is the great fire now, for presenting a negative view of Australia. And I think, oh. You know, I don't think it was a good place in the nineteen fifties. You know, I think there was a lot that was really horrible about Australia in the nineteen fifties. Do you think
0: she got that criticism because she was an expatriate? Totally, totally, totally. Of
1: course, of course. I mean, Australians, we we just do not forgive people for moving away. No, and she's really not forgiven for that. I wrote in one of my novels. In one of my novels, there is a character who is um, writing a PhD or some kind of thesis on Hazard. And at one point, she makes a little list called something like What is Wrong with Shirley Hazard? One, she is a woman. Two, she's a great artist. Three, she told the truth. And four, she stayed away instead of coming home to be punished for one to three. And I think that is really true. You know, no, Hazard, I think it is. Yeah.
0: Is it useful or meaningful to think of Hazard as an Australian writer?
1: Oh, I think it is because it says to me that a lot of different kinds of people can be Australian writers. Um, you know, you don't have to have been someone who has spent all your life here. But you have to have been marked by Australia in some way, and I think that's absolutely true of her. I mean, I left Sri Lanka when I was 14, Hazard left Australia when she was 16, I think, for the first time. You cannot spend that amount of time in a place and not be marked by it. Mm. You will carry its cadences with you for the rest of your life. Uh, You may love it, you may loathe it, you may repudiate it, but you will be marked by it.
0: Mm. I mean, part of it too is, and it comes back a bit to the expatriate thing, but is writing about Australia as an outsider, even if you live Mm -hmm. your whole life here, that idea about where the establishment voice comes from and how you can push against that. And I think that's something that's incredibly useful.
1: Absolutely, in Hazard, she's always, you know, it's the voice of the outsider, whether she's writing about Australia or wherever, um, the United States, um, England. Uh, you know, she's, she's on the side of the, you know, the Australian colonials when she is in Britain, being condescended to by the British, but she's absolutely on the side of the Japanese who are being condescended to by Australian officials. In when she's writing about Hiroshima. Yeah. So she's always with whoever is the underdog and perhaps that is also a very Australian thing, you know.
0: Not unlike your work, I would say. Like, do you feel a sense of influence there or is it more a kind of just a simpatico? You know,
1: I always think of it, I think that any writer is part of an ecology, you know, you're part of the forest and Hazard was a very big tree in my part of the forest. One of the things you find again and again in Hazard is an absolute affirmation of the value of art of any kind. So she's one who makes you feel it's worth going on.
0: That's pretty great. I love that. You can get Michelle de Kretz's essay on Shirley Hazard as part of the Writers on Writers series and Brigitte Olibus's biography at all good bookstores now.
2: As a 7am listener,
0: you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Before we go, you may have seen the announcement of this year's Book of Prize, Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. It's a dystopian novel set in a grim vision of fascist Ireland, and it's... fine? Regular listeners to read this might recall that I was far more enthusiastic about another Irish Paul on the shortlist, Paul Murray's The Beasting was my pick, but clearly I was wrong. And as promised, two more picks for my own Christmas wish list. I'm hoping some kind person will buy me Mick Cummins's novel of homelessness and addiction. It's called So Close to Home. He's a local writer, and it's a debut that's already attracting great reviews. I'd also love a copy of Alice Zaslavsky's In Praise of Veg. It's a cookbook, but Alice is as charming a writer as she is a broadcaster and every one of her recipes I've tried so far has been a sensation. Yes, please. You can find these books and all the others we mentioned at your favorite independent bookstore or if you want to listen to them as audiobooks, head to the Read This Reading Room at apple.co/readthis. There's a link in our show notes. And while you're there, why not review us and then forward us to other people and then review us again, all the stars, all the endorsements. Read This is produced and edited by Clara Ames. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. Thanks for listening. See you next week.